it went straight down the middle. From the Legends Golf Club in Franklin, Indiana, it's straight down the middle, the way we like our tee shots and our golf discussion. Now, here are your hosts, the 38th president of the PGA of America, Ted Bishop, and me, Brian Hammonds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Straight Down the Middle. I'm Brian Hammonds, along with Ted Bishop, and today we will put the finishing touches on the Masters and take a look at the professional game in general with a special guest who has been covering golf for over 30 years. That's true, Brian. It was my privilege when I was an officer with the PGA of America to be with Jaime when he received the Lifetime Achievement Award in Journalism from the PGA down at Augusta at the Golf Writers Dinner. And without a question, he is one of the most respected and admired voices in golf. And Jaime, we really appreciate your joining us today. Well, that's my pleasure, Ted. And Brian, thank you. And uh, I do remember that night, Ted. And it um, doesn't seem that long ago, but uh, it was uh, it was really nice uh, to be with you that night. And, and um, I don't know, uh, I've been lucky in my career, but... Uh, Sometimes uh, you feel like you're over, <laughs> you're overpraised and overrated. But uh, you know that night was uh, was really special because my family was there, my dad and my my sister. And uh, um, thank you for uh, for being so gracious that night. Well, Jaime, as Brian said, we're we're actually taping this show two days after the Masters. You were there for Golf Channel again this year. How many Masters is that for you? I, I was counting as thirty nine. So. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I might have 38. I might be wishful thinking because when you get 40, you get a parking space in the media lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. Yeah, can be. Yeah. <laughs> so what uh, what basically were your overall impressions of this year's Masters? Well, you know, it was really uh, – I it, it looked like it was going to be a really consequential Masters in terms of some of the issues, certainly live and, uh, you know, the distance uh, debate and – uh, based on what Fred Ridley was going to say on Wednesday. And not that it wasn't consequential, but, you know, he, he was open-ended and measured, and, you know, nothing was really decided other than it, it's a, there's a very strong indication that he will support the USGA and the RNA's position on distance. Um, as far as live guys, uh, I, I think, you know, he's going to honor whoever qualified for the Masters, as he did uh, this year uh, going forward. But that doesn't mean that the world ranking points won't change. Uh, he was not, he kind of supported the world ranking points as the measure of how to uh, best qualify. And because most live golf, well, live golfers are not getting world ranking points for their, for their live events, there's a good chance in a year, few of them will be eligible uh, for the top 50 in the world. Uh, and then the 13th hole was really interesting. And I thought it, I thought it played great. I thought that was a great change. Um, so, the start was great, and then, of course, we had that terrible weather, but Sunday just kind of redeemed the whole thing. And I mean, especially seeing Phil Mickelson come back like that, that was such a, a surprise uh, and a welcome one for me. I mean, I, I feel bad for everything Phil has, has gone through. Well, obviously, a lot of it uh, self-induced, but still, uh, you know, I, 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 I've always been an admirer of his abilities, and, and I've always liked dealing with him. So I, I hate to see him in the doghouse, so to speak, and I'm glad. I think he gained a lot from that round and, and reminded people that he's, he's still a brilliant player. Uh, we thought Brooks was really admirable. To, it just surprised me again that he came back so fast. I, I'd been writing him off. You know, I watched that Netflix uh, uh, episode with him, and 
it, it was very clear that he had kind of gone to live motivated by thinking his career was over uh, because of injuries. And so to get well and then come back to form at least to that extent so quickly was really a, kind of a shock. And, you know, the fact that he didn't hold on, I guess you could say is predictable. He looked like, as they say, big game Brooks fair for a while where he, he looked at, you know, uh, like the guy who finished his majors like he used to, but it, probably a little too much to expect. He, he lost a little edge uh, over the, the Sunday and, and John Rahm was the best player. And, and so John Rahm's a great talent, and I think he's pushed really hard to win majors, probably gotten his own way a few times. So to get one and maybe learn more of the secret of how to do it without you know, getting really uh, wound up for one thing and then also just not, not putting too much pressure on yourself, just trusting that, that you've got enough game even if you're not brilliant, uh, I think that'll be something that he holds with him, you know, in his preparations for other majors, and, and I expect him to win more. You know, Jaime, just getting back to Phil Mickelson for a second, and certainly you've you followed his entire career from start to finish, and what what do you think his legacy will be at the end of his career? I mean, how, how do you see the next few years unfold? folding for him and will he ever regain his stature i guess in the game so to speak you know i think he will because i i think what was looking like it was going to threaten all that was the 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 possibility that that live would really destroy the structure of professional golf and because phil was somewhat of an architect of that or at least uh played a big role in in undermining the pga tour by recruiting for live and you know, speaking publicly on behalf of Liv and, and himself jumping, I, I think in that moment it looked really bad for him. Uh, it looked like he was a traitor. Uh, and you can still make that argument, but I think it's not looking like Liv is going to have, and this is speculative, of course, and they could surprise us, but it doesn't look like it's going to have the traction that it, it may have started out looking like it would have with so many guys jumping. I don't think there's any real big-name pros who want to go to live now uh, because they've seen, first of all, that live is not an ideal situation, even though there's tremendous amount of money, the obligation is pretty high and the PGA tours made all these, you know, quote unquote improvements, uh, certainly uh, financially for the players. So I think momentum's on the PGA tour, keeping it going here. And, and because of that, I think Phil's sins, quote unquote, will, will be forgiven. And especially if Phil plays like this and, you know, it's kind of shallow of us sometimes, but, you know, winning takes care of everything. Not to say he's won, but just finishing second and shooting 65 in that last round, I think it just gave him a new persona based on the way it had been the last couple of years. So, you know, if he can just kind of hold it, hold his cards close to his vest, and he has stayed very quiet, and I think he knows he's in a sort of penance mode right now, penance period. And, you know, I think he's taking the high road in that regard, not taking a lot of cheap shots, not, not being real vocal, just sort of taking the hit. And, uh, and I think coming out the other end, uh, sort of uh, forgiven a little bit more. I think, it, you know, he's just too good. To, you know, six majors and the 45 victories and the win at Kiowa at age 51. Uh, I guess he was 50. But in any event, just one of the, one of the great – talents ever and one of the great characters ever and i hope that's not forgotten uh and i don't think it will as long as 
he gets through this period. It was looking awfully dark there for about six months, but I, I, I think uh, just based on yesterday and the reaction and sort of the eagerness people had to see him do well, I think deep down um, they're willing to forgive. Jaime Diaz is our guest on Straight Down the Middle, and you, you mentioned Rom, you mentioned Brooks and, and Mickelson, but what are some of the other big stories that came out of uh, Masters Week, in your opinion? Well, uh, I, I mentioned the 13th hole. I, I just thought that was a uh, very consequential decision that the Masters made. They, they were going to wait for the USGA and the RNA on the distance debate to do something in, in, the, in, in the form of a rollback. I mean, uh, Fred really had used 13 as kind of the microcosm of the distance uh, debate, and it's like, you know, this hole has lost what made it maybe the best par five in tournament golf. It, the second shots are too short now, and we got to do something. But I don't want to do it myself. I don't want to change the hole. I'd rather that the RNA and the USGA came up with something that would uh, make the golf ball go shorter or use different clubs or something that would cause that second shot to be longer and, as, as Bobby Jones said, a momentous decision as far as going for it or not going for it. Um, and so they, they decided we can't wait anymore because even, even if the USGA's proposal goes through, the, the soonest it would go through is 2026. And I think he just felt he had to, uh, and, and, the, and the Masters Committee in general, just felt that they had to uh, take command of the situation. And so the change they made, I thought, was really very successful. Now, we didn't have an ideal week of weather to judge it, but certainly on Thursday when it was, when it was very playable and not much wind, you know, the, the, the clubs going in there were three and four irons, a, a few hybrids, even, a, even some fairway woods. And that's a throwback to the old days. Uh, you rarely saw a fairway wood last, I'd say, more than a decade, maybe two decades. Rarely saw a fairway wood coming in at 13. I know Nick Valda was talking about having a – he had a three wood in 89. And that's the last really consequential shot. There's, there's a really good book by David Barrett. I think it's called maybe the, the Making of the Masters. It's not The Making of the Masters. It's, no, The Stories of the Masters. It just uh, – tournament by tournament, every Masters tournament just has a, uh, a, a really well-written and very well-chosen um, uh, facts from that particular tournament. And, and so you're, you're learning what the key shots were. And three-wood was getting hit all the time. Arnold Palmer hit a bunch of three-woods. Byron Nelson, of course. That was the shot. You know, it you, you really was a scary risk-reward situation. And I think they, they have come close to restoring that. And I think it's just good for golf. It's great for that hole. It's great for Augusta. And I think it's shed some light on the distance debate, which is, in my mind, basically, I mean, I know there's things about sustainability, but in my mind it's mostly about restoring challenge and making, it, making the game more interesting by asking more skill of the very best players. And I think 13 did that. You know, Jaime, you and I were around each other a lot during the anchoring controversy back in 2013 and 14, and you probably know my stance on bifurcation. We had Tom Watson on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I, I was interested by some of his comments during the uh, press conference at Augusta after the uh, honorary starters were done with their stuff on Thursday. But uh, back to the, the ball rollback for just a second. I mean, how do you or what are you hearing if the ball is rolled back? Where does How is this going to affect the recreational game? Well, that's the whole point, I think, of the USGA's sort of targeted solution, which is the model local rule which means you can adopt, and the design is for the very highest level, elite golf, 
and, and you can you can question how how do you delineate that and where exactly does that start and end? But I would say let's say at at the elite amateur, uh, you know, U.S. amateur level, going up, uh, you would those although you could adopt a local rule for your club championship if you wanted to and play that that ball that is being rolled back. I think the flexibility of that actually has a certain uh, beauty to it. Personally, I know some people think it's chaotic, uh, but I, I think that there will be a pretty easy to administer um, model local rule at, at if the PGA Tour were to adopt it, which I'm not sure they will, but certainly at the majors, I mean, the USGA is going to adopt it. As it stands right now, they're supporting it. The RNA supports it, of course. Augusta National supports it. Jack Nicholas supports it. Tiger Woods supports it. Rory McIlroy supports it. Then on the other side, you have, I'm presuming, the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, and the manufacturers. And that's, that's a powerful, powerful force. And, and a lot of the PGA Tour players who are uh, against it are in line with their endorser, in, in this case, you know, Titleist. So, you know, that's the most powerful manufacturer on this issue. So it's going to be, I think, uh, a lot of negotiation between now and then. Uh, you know, that, that, that ball test that they tested 127 miles an hour and you have to get it under 320 yards, that's what creates that effective rollback of about 20 yards. But it could be that they roll that number, not roll it, but, uh, you know, negotiate that number down to, let's say, 124 or 125, and the rollback would only be about 12, 12 yards. So... That's a starting number. I don't think that's set in stone, and I think there might be some give from the USGA and the RNA on that. But, you know, that's how it would work for me, Ted. I, I don't think it's – I think it's necessary because I just see in, in the pro game just too many wedges, just too many – and I've said that a million times, and it's probably, you know, simplistic, but it really does come down to that. Just, you know, these approach shots on great holes, 480-yard holes, and they're still wedges. And, and they keep lengthening them, and, and maybe it causes a 9-iron, but nobody's hitting – four and five irons into par fours anymore unless the weather's bad or into the wind. So I just think that's not great for the pro game. I think it, it definitely, you know, limits the amount of skill that they can show. And it also, in my opinion, limits the amount of separation the best players can have over the rest. Because uh, I think, and it sounds, you know, silly because golf's so hard, but in a way, golf's a little too easy right now, in my opinion, on the pro tours. I mean, getting back to the Masters, on television, it appeared the patrons were clearly favoring Rahm against Brooks Kepka. Now, they were polite to Kepka, but what was it like in person? Was there favoritism being shown by the crowd toward PGA Tour players over live players? I think it came through on that moment when Rahm took the lead. I forget what hole it was, but yeah, that was a very kind of visceral response, Like, and I think that... There was an undercurrent of that, you know, they were polite to the live guys and the live guys and the players and the PGA Tour players, there were no, there were no moments of tension. I, the, 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 the champion's dinner was very civil and there just wasn't any quotes going back and forth or any, any trash talk or anything like that. Uh, and I think that was in, out of respect to the Masters, but also I think there's a kind of an empathy for everybody who made their decision. Um, there's certain guys who, you know, at the end of their careers, cashed out, like, like Bubba Watson, which it's, uh, as, as gifted as I think Bubba is still and uh, how I think he kind of underachieved because, given his abilities, uh, he's had enough in some ways. Uh, that doesn't mean he couldn't win the Masters because he, he gets to come back, but, you know, as far as the intensity with which he's preparing and those sorts of things, he's, he's kind of uh, uh, basically uh, 
step back, uh, which fine. And I, I think there's a sense, okay, Bubba, that's your call. The only thing is, don't try come back. Don't try to come back to the PGA Tour because it was very clear that if you left, you know, you were going to be basically banned. And that was built into the cake when they took their money from Live, or baked into the cake. So, you know, I, I think the fans are aware of that, especially at Augusta. It's a pretty sophisticated golf crowd. And, sure, there's favoritism towards the, you know, I think it comes down to, are we going to let the Saudi Arabians buy golf? You know, I, I, I think there's a sense of almost anti-Americanism with Live a little bit. And, you know, at, at Augusta in the South, that might have been a little more pronounced than other places. I'm speculating there. But I, I do sense that, you know, Live does not have a lot of fans uh, at, at traditional PGA Tour sites. You know, Jaime, you kind of alluded to this, but you have to believe at some point there's going to be a live player that has had enough of live and would really like some path of re-entry back to the PGA Tour. I mean, do you, is that possible? How do you see that scenario unfolding? Well, again, Ted, I, I do see it, but I don't know if I can specifically guess correctly. But I, I think if live starts to lose momentum, I think it'll be very clear that the best place to play in the world is the PGA Tour or maybe the DP World Tour. Um, and I've already heard there's, there is some buyer's remorse by some players, of which, you know, I'm, again, repeating a rumor, but Brooks was one of them. And I think that might have been one reason that everything was so cordial last week is I think these guys don't want to burn any bridges in case there is a path back. It wouldn't be immediate. It would probably require, like Phil's paying in, in an unofficial way, uh, sort of a penance, um, whether it's financial or uh, obligations to play a lot of tournaments or something, or just, you know, a, a two-year or a year ban uh, where you have to sit out. Uh, who knows? I don't know. I think it all depends on how big a threat Liv is or remains. In other words, if Liv remains a threat, you don't want to let guys back because that only encourages more guys to go to Live and say, you know, look, they're going to let me off. I can play the majors. I can make all this money at Live. And what, I'm just going to miss playing the PGA Tour? I can have, you know, in a sense, kind of the best of both worlds if I'm not really looking to play a lot. Um, so I think Jay Monahan and whoever uh, is running the decision-making at the PGA Tour uh, on that issue has to make it hurt that you went to Live, and if you're going to come back, uh, there's going to be a price to pay. But if Liv's no longer really in the picture as a threat, I think they want those players back on some on some level. You know, with three of the top five players on the leaderboard, could Liv consider the Masters week a win for them? I think so. You know, I, I think they certainly will, I think, uh, promote it that way. I'm sure Greg Norman is going to is going to point that out over and over, and he should. I mean, it's probably his best talking point right now. But, you know, last night I was asked, or not last night, Sunday night, you know, um, and, and I just feel like, you know, Brooks and Phil and even, even Patrick Reed are identified as, as great players, first and foremost, who happen to play for Liv. I don't think because they played well at the Masters, you suddenly want to go over to Liv and watch them play. Uh, I just don't think Liv's that compelling a product, even if Phil's over there and Brooks is over there and Patrick's over there winning. Uh, because, you know, the intensity and the and the, the kind of the stakes aren't very high except for all that prize money. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, uh, yeah, short term, you can say, we all know Liv players are good. I, I think people now have gained, it's not really, if you went to Liv, you suddenly can't play. I don't think anybody who has any sense of, how golf is in, 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 in a career, over a career, 
say that. It's like, uh, are you suddenly unable to prepare because you've taken the money? I don't think so at all. And in fact, the opposite, probably because they have this kind of long sort of, uh, what would I say, sorry, uh, a long season there that doesn't really demand a lot of them. And they can peak for the major they're going to play in, whether it's the Masters or all four. And in a way, you know, I think Brooks benefited from that because he got, by, by being at live, he could heal up and probably worked out in a more efficient way and didn't have to play a lot of golf. And when he came to the Masters, he was really ready. And I think Phil kind of peaked for it, too. And I'd heard from a caddy who said, who knows Patrick Reed very well, he goes, man, he is so focused on winning this Masters. Again, because he, these guys want to, they've been criticized a lot, and they want to show, you know, you were wrong about us, and we want to prove it uh, at, on the highest stage. So, yeah, it, it's sort of a short-term victory for Liv, but I don't think it has long-lasting ramifications, personally. Jaime Tiger withdrew before resumption of the third round. Are we nearing the end of him trying to play at all in the PGA Tour? Well, yes. Uh, you know, time will eventually decide that, but it did look like he took a step backward. Uh, no pun, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, it, it did look like he was really hurting. I know his plantar fasciitis. He's got screws in his foot, and I know it's terrible weather. But all I'm doing is, is kind of looking at, okay, what is peak Tiger now? You know, if he's if he's not hurting and the weather's good, and has he has I don't know that he has enough anyway. Uh, you know, over four days, because at some point there's going to be just just the exhaustion of having to walk that far. Um, and I don't know, of course, uh, but he just doesn't look quite the same now. What he did in 2019 was he maximized, you know, what the, the gifts he had left, and he used his incredible competitiveness at the end there to to close it out. I don't think he has as much game as he had back in 2019, and, and everything had to go right for that to happen. So if he can't win, I'm going to say he can't, but let's assume he's feeling like, man, it's really a long shot. I don't know how long he wants to keep putting himself through this. Uh, and if, it, if, if there's any more like Augusta was, and that was kind of a worst-case scenario, I, I just think he might, he might want to step away uh, you know, before he hits 50. And I think he definitely will come back, though, for the PGA Tour champion. He can take a cart, and I think he still loves to play. And he does want to win one more USJ event, so he passes uh, Jack Nicklaus uh, and Bobby Jones. Uh, no, I guess it's just Bobby Jones. I think Bobby Jones has nine USJ event, uh, championships, and if I win the Senior Open, Tiger would have ten. You really think Tiger would play on the Champions Tour? I know he's mentioned an interest in it when he can take a cart, but do you really think he'd, he would go out there and play? I do. I, I think he loves to play. I think that's his favorite thing to do. Is lo- he loves golf. And I think he's, there's going to be a void in his life. And I think by that time, he'll want to fill it. And, you know, it's just golf. It's his guys that he grew up, not grew up with, but played with. Um, I, don't, I don't think it in any way diminishes him or his aura. Uh, I mean, Brian and, and, and Ted, we all remember when Trevino and Nicholas came out in the early 90s. I mean, that, at that time, the, the uh, senior tour was just hopping. I mean, in, in some cases, it had better ratings than the PGA Tour. So... I mean, there's some great golf to be watched out there for me. I mean, maybe not the general public, but I, I think people who really love the game and love to see the remnants of greatness, which Tiger, I think, would show, uh, would, would, would be very eager to see him, and I think he'd have a lot of fun with it. Well, it'd certainly be good for that tour. He would definitely put butts in seats. Now, Jaime, as someone who's been around this game forever, how do you feel about the direction professional golf is going right now? Well, I, I think... It was really a, a, a very um, pragmatic 
and and strategically sound decision to, to make the changes they made uh, regarding the designated events and kind of the tour, two-tier tour in a way, uh, you know, which is weighted toward the stars. Um, I think, I'm not sure it's better in the sense that, you know, if you're on the PGA Tour, you and you've gotten your card, and let's just cut it off at 125, um, you're capable of winning any week, any of those guys. I, I, I often hear, oh, you only got to beat 30 guys or something like that. I don't believe that. I see it too often where somebody comes out of the woodwork and wins. Um, you know, we've had, it, we've had it this year. The names are escaping me right now, but it kind of speaks to the, some of these guys not being that well-known, but when they're on their game, they're, they're just as good as anybody, especially a star who's not on his game. So I think that's part of the challenge of the PGA Tour is you beating the hot players that week, no matter if you're a star or anything. And I know people say, well, at the majors, you know, that eliminates a lot of guys who don't have quite the skill level uh, because the, uh, the conditions are much tougher. And, and to some extent that's true, but we've seen a lot of underdog uh, major winners too. So I think to have a no-cut, limited field, star-defined tour is kind of a false premise in the sense that I'm not convinced those guys are week in, week out the very best. You're leaving some guys out there who might be on that week better than any of those guys because that's the nature of golf. So I think you, you sort of lessen the challenge, but it's also better marquee. It's better, a better product. Uh, so I understand, and right now, as Jay Monahan said, it's product versus product. Uh, after that, I think they'll be, in my opinion, once, if it happens, the threat of live dissipates, I think they will start to move back towards the more traditional type field with cuts and bigger fields. Maybe not all the way back, but toward in that direction. Well, as we tape this, uh, Rory McIlroy and Jordan Spieth have withdrawn from Hilton Head, which is an elevated event. Is that schedule already starting to catch up to the PGA Tour? I mean, first of all, having an elevated event the week after the Masters probably wasn't the best decision, but is that elevated event schedule starting to catch up with the Tour? I think so, Brian. I do. I, I think they love their autonomy and, you know, making their own schedules. And, yeah, there's obligations. And I think there was an emergency moment where they felt like, okay, we can commit to 20 and we can save the tour. And now that the urgency might be lessening a bit, that we don't, we've, we've already saved the tour, let's say, or close to it, if the court cases go the way they're going and, and, uh, and the live guys start to show some disaffection, uh, maybe, maybe Rory, who's been the champion of the PGA Tour, feels... Like I can take a week here, and we'll we'll work on that requirement. By the way, you know we'll uh, you know by the end of the year it won't be twenty; it'll be a different number, and there'll be more leeway to get out of these things. Uh, I think it's a really you know it's a strong sentiment to help the tour right now. But you know after the, I'm sure he's super disappointed at the Masters. Uh, Hilton Head's never been a course. I think he's he's done very well on. Uh, you know, and why would he play except you know out of this obligation? And you're right about the, uh, you know, why is this a designated event? Well, RBC is a big, a big sponsor, and they have to pay them back. So there's all these things right now that are, you know, being, being weighed back and forth, and there's compromises and there's, there's allowances that are being made that I think in an ideal world, when things maybe get a little closer back to normal, they won't have to do. Jaime, as it relates to the purses in the major championships, and I, I've followed this closely and i'm kind of intrigued by what's going on in golf right now obviously the masters increased their purse to 18 million dollars this year from 
15 million. And I, I look at the PGA championship and in, in 2013, that purse was $8 million. It was raised to 10 in 2014. And if they follow suit with uh, what the masters did, and no doubt the U S open is going to do, and I'm, I'm sure they will, then the PGA championship will be at 18 million, which is $10 million more than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a ridiculous jump in, in the purse for an association like the PGA of America, quite honestly, but they, they really have no choice. But do you think that the perception of the majors by the players now in any way, shape or form changes when you've got eight elevated events that have greater purses and, and of course the, the players championship at 25 million. You know, I'm not sure, Ted. I think history is still a huge um, reward, making history, uh, being being considered an all-time great player because you won a major or majors. So I think, you know, you never heard Tiger talk about the purse or Jack talk about the purse at the majors. I understand money is at the forefront of everybody's, you know, measuring stick for golf right now, for professional golf. But I, I, I still think the, the guys who want to be great will – will always consider the majors more important. I think there's a chance, let's say, the, and this is just me again, the PGA Tour, if it doesn't adopt that rollback and the, and the majors do, um, and let's say the PGA of America goes along and there's four majors playing with a rollback golf ball, in my mind that raises the status of the majors even more because they're playing a more challenging, harder game that, you know, to be champion of one of those events will mean you really played at the very, very highest level of golf. I don't think the PGA Tour wants that perception. So that's why it's a difficult decision going forward, what, what everybody does with this rollback. Uh, but as far as the, the money, uh, I don't know. These guys, the money is so big right now, does it really matter if uh, PGA of America, if PGA Championship is played for $15 million or $18 million? I, I don't know. I guess people can point that out and go, oh, you're an inferior product. You didn't jump up all the way to the Masters or the U.S. Open. But... You know, I think you're really asking a lot of sponsors, and, and I think there could be a backlash with that. I mean, we saw during the, you know, the economic uh, turndown back in 2008, um, you know, the sponsors were really getting squeezed, and their money wasn't there, and that was a crisis. And, you know, Tim Fincham went in there and, and really had to get the players to, to rally uh, to, to do the extra little things that made their product more attractive. Uh, I could see something like that happening again. Right now, the players have all the leverage, and they're and they're getting all this money, and maybe they think that's normal. I personally think they're they pushed it pretty far, and they have to be careful. Jaime, there's no better person to ask this to, but how have you seen golf journalism change over the years? Is it better or worse now? Well, it's it's a great question, Brian, because um, in many ways it's better in terms of the volume of it and the analytics that have now quantified a lot of things that we used to just guess about anecdotally. And you can really analyze a player on a more sophisticated level and understand why he's really good or what the weaknesses are. And I think that's been a great uh, gift to the game. And, and I think the journalists are really attuned to all that. On the other hand, I, I think because of the Internet and, and all the things that we all talk about, the shorter attention spans and, and also just the, the incredibly crowded and complicated you know, media landscape, it's, it's hard to really be noticed no matter how good your quality is, uh, unless you have like a legacy, um, uh, a legacy product like like Golf Digest. I think you know I'm 
Jerry Tardy, the guy I worked for and I admire tremendously. And Golf, Golf Digest has navigated and kept their, kept their status, even though it's had to change tremendously. But it still does some long-form stuff that I think separates people. Uh, Joel Beal wrote a story about the Masters that took him about a year and a half to write, um, talking to unnamed members, but, you know, uh, basically laying out their 20-year plan, which, you know, Augusta doesn't do that kind of stuff. I, I hope nobody gets in trouble. But, you know, that was really a gift. But that takes money. It takes time. And right now the margins are very tight. The advertising no- dollars are not the same as they used to be with print. Print, uh, the, ad, the ad company's got more money. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the companies that were advertising paid more for ads. On the Internet, they don't pay as much. So, so the income is... Is, is tighter, and as a result, the resources are less to do exceptional stuff. It's, the stuff gets out faster. The results are there. I think some of the things that we used to really enjoy about journalism, you know, the, you know, the Tom Callahan's and the Dan Jenkins and, and Rick Riley's and, and so many writers that just either entertained or brought great understanding, Herb Wind, those, it's harder to be that now. There may be guys out there, and there are, who have similar talent, but they don't have the, they don't have the platform anymore to show it. Jaime, last question. You're in charge of golf. What changes would Jaime Diaz make? Oh my gosh! Uh, you know, I, I love golf. I mean, I love, I love the grind of it. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of birdies. It doesn't have to be um, a long ball. It just has to be about a lot of skill and all that internal, um, you know, battling that that the greatest players do, starting with Tiger and Jack. So I never have thought that golf could really be super entertaining uh for those who don't play golf uh it's slow it's over a long big area that it's hard to walk and see um but if you play it 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 gives you something you know very uh very satisfying uh to watch the very best in the world play so from the product standpoint i i like just producing that platform where these guys can really show how good they are without feeling like it has to be showbiz. Uh, and I don't mean showbiz is bad. Entertainment's great. But I, I want the priority to be on the skill and the challenge. And then I guess more than anything, Ted, because I was fortunate, and you probably started this way, and Brian too, I started playing golf at a young age for almost no money. You know, and easy entry into the game, I think that has to be prioritized because uh, that's how you get lifelong golfers. That's how you get really skilled young golfers who end up becoming great players. And I think it's also something, a gift, even if you don't become a skilled player, you've been given a gift. It's it's a wonderful game to, you know, as the first he has done, to learn about life. So I guess those are the two things. At the very highest level, I want to see it all about challenge and skill and and really showing what what is so hard about the game and and what has to be overcome so that you appreciate the very best players. I I always thought Jack was great at explaining all that, and it, it really inspired me to to really appreciate the game more and then to have an easy start in golf somehow and i i, I know you've been a golf course operator it's not easy i know the i like the um uh youth on course program i think that's that's the right that's the right direction to go in uh but yeah i, I want to see golf i want to see kids be able to play golf as easily as possible and um make it part of their lives at a very young age Well, Jaime, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. You've been a respected voice in this sport for a long, long time, and uh, just keep up the good work. 
Oh, thanks, Brian. And, uh, of course, following guys like you, is, you know, I, <laughs> I wasn't going to say this, but I remember coming to Golf Channel way, way back when I was just doing something. I mean, I was so bad, and I still have a lot of, uh, a lot of holes in my game on television, but uh, you were so nice to me because I was nervous and screwing it up, and, and anyway, and you were such a pro, and I always appreciated that. And, Ted, you've always been a great source and, uh, you know, basically a uh, very um, – astute observer of the game so i've been i've always enjoyed talking golf with you so thanks again thank you appreciate it that's jaime diaz of golf channel one of the most decorated golf writers in the business and ted certainly one of the most respected absolutely brian and i think the uh the style that jaime diaz has i would describe it as he has a very personal perspective really on all things golf he he takes the time as a journalist, a reporter, to really dive into the human side gives you a very practical approach, and it's never about him. And uh, he is, you could argue, he might be absolutely the best in the business right now. And he doesn't give himself enough credit. He is very good on television. (laughs) And that will do it for this episode. Thanks to Jaime Diaz for joining us, and thank you for listening. For Ted Bishop, I'm Brian Hammers. Join us again next time for Straight Down the Middle.